Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting to over 60 countries today. And from the middle of the most third most important centre in the world for entrepreneurs, startups, angels, VCs and incubators, Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, right in the middle of Silicon Beach. The sole purpose of this show is to help you run a successful business. And we try to give you tips to ensure that success. Now, we, we can't all be great at everything, so I want to help you to identify the gaps in your expertise. Now, since the internet and social media revolution, many entrepreneurs believe that the techniques that have been tried and true over generations no longer apply. Somehow they're old hat. The reality is that the more techniques um, have changed in the way we communicate, people are still motivated by, by the same things that they always were. A new research shows that the failure rate of all businesses is now up around 96%, and the failure rate of startups is around 99%. And research identifies that the major reason that businesses fail is the lack of business knowledge of management. Only 11% of management have done any business courses or learning since they finished college, despite the tumultuous changes that have taken place. Extensive research and studies of thousands of companies have identified 18 keys to the success of any business. And to be successful, business leaders must have at least a good understanding of each of these keys. Today we're going to talk about the first four of these 18 keys and we'll discuss a few more each week. Let me begin by giving you the full list of the 18 keys for you. So if you have a pen handy, you should write these down. One, provide powerful, decisive leadership, a clear vision, strategy, and plan. Two, continuously learn, understand your competition, embrace change. Three, develop a dynamic marketing strategy and plan. Four, maximize the use of technology and management, production, and distribution. Five, understand what business you're in. Six, create a powerful consumer benefit. Seven, build brand equity. Eight, ensure adequate funding from either angel, VC or crowdfunding. Nine, add expertise through mentors, management and board. Ten, sell emotional. Benefits sell, features don't. Understand clearly what motivates your customers Differentiate yourself and your business from competitors. 13, add value to every customer interaction. 14, provide a compelling risk reversal with every transaction. 15, think outside the box. 16, be a good communicator. Select the right communication vehicles. 17, fully understand social media, marketing, research and data. And 18, Ensure you've got the commitment, the passion, and the determination 
of the complete team. So they're the minimum keys to create a successful business. None of them are difficult, but you've got to know them. And if you miss any of them, you diminish your chance of being successful. Now, the very first key and one that is the starting point for successful business is to provide powerful, decisive leadership, a clear business vision, strategy and plan. In my day, I've met hundreds, if not thousands of CEOs and business leaders and most of them are lousy. They're poor communicators. They're not motivating. A lot of them debilitate their um, team rather than motivate them. Now, highly successful people and businesses demonstrate leadership, have a high vision of self, have internal motivation, they're high achievers, they have clear goals and direction, and they have a clear vision for the future. And most importantly, they have a real passion for what they do. You know, it's essential to have a clear vision of where you want to be in 12 months, two years and five years' time. Once you understand that clearly, you need to create a business strategy and a plan detailing precisely how you plan to achieve this strategy. Now, you need to include in the plan elements such as primary, secondary and tertiary target markets, analysis of the total market, potential regulatory changes, um, competitive analysis, marketing strategy and implementation plan, your management structure, financials, in fact, every element that can affect the outcome of your business. Now, the second critical key for you, if you want to build a successful business in a fast-changing world, is to continually upgrade your learning and embrace change. According to Harvard Business School, a primary reason for lack of success is that only 11% of business owners or managers have any ongoing learning. Now, we're in the knowledge age and we need to keep ourselves updated with developments, not only in our specific field, but across the board. We need to continue to learn. Now, does it agree that you got 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, or 20 years ago, stand you in good stead today? No, of course it doesn't. The average Fortune 500 CEO reads 27 business books a year, as well as trade magazines and newspapers. The average businessman reads none. The reason that they give? They're too busy. Really. One of the first things we should do each day is to look at our competitors' websites. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but people do a lot of boasting about future plans on websites, and a hell of a lot of information gets posted that was not supposed to be put up. And if you check their websites every day, it's amazing what you can pick up about your competitors. We've also got to continually change how we market our services because of traditional ways are no longer acceptable, and we'll get to that a bit later on. But we need to totally understand the use of new media. It's highly cost-effective. It spreads word like wildfire, and sites like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, chat rooms and blogs are critical to your success today. We're in the knowledge age. The person with the nice, most knowledge and who applies it the most effectively is always going to win. To be successful in business, you've got to have a number of skill sets. 
to be the best you can be, you need knowledge of all of them. You don't necessarily have to be the smartest kid on the block in all of them, but you need to know all of them. And this success comes from having superior knowledge and advice. And successful business leaders have excellent mentors. You know, I've got a series of mentors that help me in different parts of my business and personal life. And it's amazing how much you can learn from the experience of others. Just ask yourself this simple question. How many skill sets are there in your current role and for the role you want sometime in the future? And of all those skill sets, how many are you really good at? You might be surprised at the answer. And the third key to developing a successful business is to have a dynamic marketing strategy. The first question we need to ask ourselves is, what is marketing? Well, marketing today includes every action taken by a business that in any way impacts a potential customer. When my company's called in to improve a client's business, one of the first things we look at is their customer relationship and service. We then identify every single customer interaction, you know, whether it be reception or walk-in or on the phone or online or delivery or service or the, how the salespeople perform, etc. And then we create a customer service strategy for every one of those individual interactions that creates a wow factor for the customer. We then create ways with our technology group to measure the effectiveness of every interaction. It doesn't matter whether it's advertising, direct mail, sponsorship, hospitality, the operation of the office. We make sure that we can measure the effectiveness. And before you can effectively do this, you need to understand that customers are looking for information, for solutions and for relationships. So what you should be looking for are specific targeting, one-on-one dialogue, leveraging, and more cost-effective communication. So how do you achieve this? Firstly, choosing the correct individual disciplines to achieve the specific targeting that you require. Not mass marketing. Mass marketing is useless. It's gone. It's dead. It's been dead for years. New media is excellent for one-on-one targeting and developing word of mouth and demand, you know, through SMS, email and social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. Secondly, you need to develop an extensive database strategy. Today, marketers must be accountable for every aspect of their budget. Any idiot can spend money. It's much more difficult to spend money very wisely and highly efficiently. Now, business is really cutthroat. It's really competitive. So if you're not the most efficient and the most effective, you may not survive. And with technology, you know, you can measure the performance of every aspect of your business. And bear in mind that you can't measure what you can't control. And more importantly, you can't control what you can't measure. So it's critical to put in place metrics that can measure every single aspect of your business, no matter what it is. Get in an expert. I'll show you how to do it. You don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to be the smartest kid on the block.
And the fourth key to creating a successful business is to maximize your use of technology. Technology is rapidly changing the way we run our offices, the way we manufacture our products, the way we distribute our products, the way we talk to our um, representatives out in the marketplace, the way we perform our services. So we must be highly technologically advanced in our offices and in communication with both our people in the field, our customers and our suppliers. You need to have a transparent system for everyone in the chain so that your customers at any time can find out what the status of their delivery is, what the status of their order is, where it is, how far away it is from being delivered, etc. We must have a sophisticated database capture system. We've got to have customer and supplier online information access. Use SMS and email, Twitter, Facebook to address clients and also solicit business. You know, with technology, we can improve the efficiency. We can streamline and measure absolutely everything from system efficiencies, staff efficiencies, manufacturer, distribution, sales patterns, marketing and advertising performance, and all of this stuff we can measure in real time, right now. So that's the first four of the 18 keys that we all need to know to be able to develop a successful business. And next week, we'll address the next three keys to running a successful business, and we'll be doing that from Cuba, from Havana. Are you a member of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management? That's the premier organization for business in the U.S., And if you're serious about improving your skill level, your status and your network, and if you need to get answers to important questions in your business 24-7 instantly from absolute world's best experts, you should join today. Go to AISMM.us and join now. My guest today is Jeffrey Kravitz. He's regarded as one of the leading intellectual property, trademark, copyright and trade secret attorneys in California. However, today we're discussing the equal pay issue. Jeffrey's a really good guy and I'll be back with him immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. 
Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. This is a segment where we give you the, an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting people, the services that they provide to business, and we try to find out what makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business and we all need all the help that we can get and that's why it's so important to have mentors and why it's important to listen to interviews like the one you're about to hear so that we can take on board that advice and uh, hopefully we won't make the same mistakes that a lot of others before us have made. One of the things that I guess most startups and and small businesses don't really think much about is um, the importance of having a business attorney and a business attorney that looks at quite a wide range of of subjects um, in in a startup business. And my guest today is Jeff Kravitz, who represents clients in uh, the entertainment industry, including production companies, studios and individuals, but with their litigation needs, copyright infringement, invasion of privacy, um, sexual harassment, contracts, and he provides business counselling rela- related to their intellectual property. Now, all this, although this is not going to come up in today's discussion, I think it's really important to emphasise that getting legal advice when you're setting up a business um, particularly protecting your IP, shareholders agreements, because while everything sounds rosy when you begin the business, it can get off track with um, with partners and major shareholders pretty quick. And unless you cross your T's and dot your I's and do it legally, you can find yourself in all sorts of trouble. So that's just a just a by the by the way advice to um, to startups in particular. Now Jeff Kravitz was named one of the leading intellectual property, trademark, copyright and trade secrets attorneys in California by Chambers USA. He's got a number of celebrity accounts, including Smokey Robinson, who I saw at the um, Hollywood Bowl on uh, 4th of July, and he was unbelievable. And Seal, George Lopez, Kobe Bryant, Gwen Stefani, and a whole bunch more. However, having said all that, Today I want to speak about a subject that's beginning to get huge traction, and rightly so. The subject is equal pay for equal work. It's been talked about for 50 years plus, and it's never happened. And it doesn't seem to be getting any closer now than it was from the figures I've seen. It doesn't seem to be getting any closer now than it was 20 years ago. Now, on October the 6th last year, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a Senate bill, which took effect about three weeks ago, and it strengthens California's existing equal pay laws, but dating back to 1949, and it's applicable to all California employers with California 
based employees. Many believe that the Act is the most aggressive equal pay law in the US and it's hoped that many, many other states will follow this lead. So let's get in and talk about this. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. Delighted to be here and thank you very much for having me on board. It's a pleasure. Um, how would you summarize the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act in your own words for those of us who are sort of just getting familiar with it? Sure. Let, let me give you a little bit of a sense as to the run-up on this. I mean, as you noted, we've had attempts at employment equality for close to 50 years at this point. It was President Kennedy who signed the first act, and yet we still have situations where women feel that they're not being compensated uh, equally, equally or appropriately is probably the best way to put it. Uh, for those of, of you who saw the Golden Globes, uh, the host uh, talked about Jennifer Lawrence and her concerns about not getting paid the same as her male counterparts. And tongue-in-cheek, he said, boy, she can barely get by on $52 million a year. Um, but as we know, we're not talking about just the superstars uh, in Hollywood in terms of uh, equal pay. We're talking about the moms and the pops who have to get by on, on quite a bit less than that. Although it's interesting because just when you think the headlines have declined, Gillian Anderson, who's on the new reboot of The X-Files, Yep. was quoted the other day as saying that she had to negotiate a long, long time before she got paid the same on the reboot as David Duchovny. But talking about what the new act's going to do, we're now past the point about talking about equal pay for equal work. And the new act speaks to equal pay for substantially equivalent work. And boy, that one sounds like a hornet's nest, doesn't it, Bob? Yeah, it does. So what exactly does that mean? Well, and frankly, that's going to be what lawyers are going to be dealing with over the next several years. And it is what your listeners should be dealing with proactively. Similar jobs, different pay. Let's, let's talk about a couple of examples. Let's assume that uh, somebody works in a hospital and... Uh, they're the person who empties the bedpans. Right. Should they get paid the same as a janitor? I can make a good argument that they should get paid more than janitor. Janitor doesn't have to have a personality. Somebody who's emptying the bedpans is going to be uh, interacting with the patients and should have something of a personality, that's for sure. Right. And that's, a, that's one good example, um, but there are going to be a whole host of them out there and the question's going to be, how do you as an employer protect yourself? Okay, just before we get on to that, how, how do you equate, um, I know a lot of, lot of businesses that um, uh, employ both men and women, and, and let's say that the men and women are coming out of college or they're 24, 25, and uh, for the first couple of years, when you go into a job, a lot of that time is spent learning the trade, learning to you know learning what the company does, and and it takes you a couple of years probably before you're very productive. Why should I pay? I'm being devil's advocate here. Why should I pay the same money to a woman 
um, where I have to go through a period of training them for a couple of years and they then go off and get married and have kids and, you know, away from the company perhaps for a period of time and it's certainly a disruption through the pregnancy period. Why, why should I pay her the same wage as I should, as I'd pay an equivalent man who's possibly not going to leave? And of course, the other argument, I guess, is that the woman's not necessarily going to get married either. But how do you how do you balance that out? Because as an employer, surely you'd think, well, I'll just employ guys, and then I'm not going to run that risk. Well, you know what? That presents its own risks. If you're only employing guys, you run the risk that some woman who's been denied a job is going to come back and sue you for that. Answering your first question, there are too many assumptions there that just don't comport with what America looks like in 2015. The most recent studies show that over 40% of the households in the United States, it is the woman who is the primary breadwinner and not the guy. So you can have a situation these days where, let's say the guy's a stay-at-home dad and the woman's out there slaving every day, although those at home tend to think they work harder than anybody. But having said that, you can't make that assumption because you don't know where life's going to take you. Let me give you another example. Let's for the moment assume that you've got a job and it is a job that requires strong bodies and weak minds. Yep. All they're going to be doing is lifting things. Yep. Bob, I could make a good argument that a woman who's a weightlifter is going to do a whole heck of a lot better on that job than some guy who hasn't been eating his Wheaties. The point of the law is that you got to look at people as individuals and cannot look at them simply in terms of their gender. Right, but but having said that we look at people as individuals, um, don't we tend to classify everybody that goes into a an accounting job as all being pretty equal um, and from from a pay perspective? Well, they, they should be. Um, uh, Bloomberg Businessweek, and, and Bloomberg is, is sure no flame bomber on the left, recently ran an article where they did a survey on Wall Street, and they compared median wages between men and women, and they found out that of 265 major occupations on Wall Street, men's median salaries exceeded women's in all but one amongst Wall Street workers. And I'm not going to ask you to guess what that one was, but it was the women who were shining shoes on the street rather than the guys who were shining shoes. In every other occupation, there was a marked disparity between the men and the women for exactly the same sort of work. How how does an employer average that out? I've I've got 10 people working for me and they're all doing... A similar job and I've got two people that are standouts they do much more work they're in earlier they stay later they work harder um, they're more productive therefore um, I pay them a lot more um, how, do, how, how do you equate that back when you're looking at men let's say they're both men just well, they could be both women, it doesn't matter. But um, because women are getting less pay, if they're both men and they're getting earning more money, how do you then say that 
the other people, men and women, are entitled to the same pay? Well, the answer is that's certainly a defense as to what's happening. And uh, interestingly, when the bill passed, it, it passed unanimously, and even the Chamber of Commerce supported it. Yeah. And one of the reasons they supported it was they at least walked away convinced that that wasn't going to be a problem, that your superstars are still going to earn superstar wages. Yep. And if your superstar happens to be a man rather than a woman, go ahead and pay that superstar. Yep. That is not substantially equivalent work. I would argue that uh, those who are doing an amazing job for you, you need to keep those people. And the way that you keep them in the United States is you pay them better. Sure. You don't treat better in the workplace. You should treat everybody the same, but you better be paying them better or the competition well, is going to be the way to their door. Absolutely. Uh, incidentally, I'm just playing the devil's advocate because I'm a very strong uh, supporter of equal pay for equal work. I don't want to get a whole bunch of emails telling me what an asshole I am. Um, so is this bill or some close proximity similarity of it likely to spread across the country state by state or well I, I think it will and I don't think it's necessarily a red state blue state analysis um, the people on the right are going to want women's votes as well and women vote more than guys these days yeah so I don't see that as being an impediment to spreading across the United States I think it will um, I think that the devil is in the details I can tell you that right now, um, as I'm talking out to the employers out there, you got the whole plaintiff's bar caucusing on how they're going to be able to sue on this thing. So yeah. employers need to be proactive ahead of time. I always like it when a client comes to me, whether for counseling or for a lawsuit, to find that they've done some of their homework so that we don't have to start from the very beginning with a lawsuit brewing in the background. Right. So... What's, it, what's the major objection um, from, say, employers to equal pay for equal work? Or is that not an objection? Is the objection simply the same argument, I guess, they put up for um, minimum wage is that um, we can't afford to increase the wages of half our workforce by 26% or whatever the disparity is? Well, I, I don't find that employers necessarily object to this in, in the abstract. You know, as, as I mentioned, the, the devil's going to be in the details in terms of what you do. One of the things in the act that's rather unique is if you read it on its face, it says that you're not going to be able to have a disparity in terms of what you're paying people because of geography. And I've already had people come to me and say, no, wait a minute, I got a plant in Bakersfield and I got a plant in San Francisco. Yeah. San Francisco has a municipal um, uh, minimum wage, which somewhere along their line is going up to $15 an hour, regardless of what the feds do. Yeah. Bakersfield is a place where people are begging for jobs. And why should I as an employer have to pay the person in Bakersfield, regardless of sex, the same amount of money that I'm paying in San Francisco? It's not the same labor market. I got to go with what the labor market says. Oh, it's and not, I guess I, I guess the other side of that is it's not only the labor market, but um, uh, a quality home in Bakersfield is going to be about a tenth of the price of a quality home in um, 
um, San Francisco. And your general cost, are going to be, it's going to be more expensive to live full stop, isn't it? So is that, is that fair, having equal pay for equal work across the country? Well, and I, I think that's going to be ironed out. I think that uh, if, if you invite me back a year and a half down the road, we'll be having this discussion, but I'll be able to give you a few more answers than I can right now. Right now, I certainly can give guidance in terms of what I'm telling uh, my law firm's employment co- um, clients. Having said that, I can't tell them what the courts are going to do because we haven't seen what the courts are going to do. But I do have various takeaways for each of the people who come down to see me and to talk about it. Right. Well, you know, you're, you're a person who makes your living standing in front of a judge and arguing a case, and I suspect that you've got a pretty good idea of what the judge is going to decide before you even finish your argument most times. Um, so what do you suspect is going to happen in a, in a case of... Um, um, comparing one location with another? I think that judges are going to put a rule of practicality on that particular question. I could be very wrong. Uh, not every judge is wonderful, but I got to tell you that my experience over the course of the years is they really, really try to be fair. And I think they would be raising the same question that we're raising on this uh, on this phone call. Is, is there... Um any, I'm not aware of it, but is there any comparison of living costs in, say, if I wanted to compare living costs in Bakersfield with living costs in um, San Francisco, is there any sort of government measure or labour industry, or anybody, any any sort of measure that gives you a comparison? Sure. And, and one of the wonderful things is these days, most information is available online, so it isn't like you have to hire somebody to find out what that information is. Uh, across the living statistics are developed by the Department of Labor and by uh, the U.S. Census. So if an employer wants to help construct a defense, if he or she is concerned about potential litigation, that's something that they can check out themselves and simply keep it tucked away for future use, use if necessary. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the best practices that California employees employers can initiate to ensure that they're compliant with the new regulations? Absolutely. I do have certain takeaways that I think every business, regardless of size, should give some thought to. Not everyone's going to be equally applicable to every business, but you need to give it some thought ahead of time. Again, what I'm saying is that When people come to see me and they've done their homework ahead of time, it's much more effective. In in the first instance, if you're a medium-sized employer or above, you ought to start out ahead of time developing or improving your pay compensation data collection. It takes time to do that, and you should be looking at that for purposes of addressing pay disparities so that companies that haven't started that practice their HR department should be taking a look at that right now. That's number one. Okay. Number two, employers should consider auditing compensation data. And obviously that's not for the mom and pops shop or for the startup, but if you are either a medium-sized business, a big business, or a growing business, get started now. What you want to do is ensure yourself before that lawsuit 
that any pay disparities can be explained using legitimate factors. Even where those factors are present, you don't have a guarantee that you're going to win the lawsuit, but you're going to sleep one heck of a lot better if you know that you have tried reasonably to apply standards in terms of uh, equal pay for substantially equivalent work. It may not take care of the entire wage differential, but I think it would get you a long way. And if you have to go to court, you always want to be that average reasonable person. Yeah, sure. The other thing that you want to do is you want to make sure that there's equal employment opportunity and that you have a policy and compensation guidelines that specifically prohibit pay discrimination based on gender or any other protected category. Right. And I know everybody listening says, well, we all know that. This is 2012. This is not 1912. Well, you need to know it, but you're really going to help yourself if you articulate it to your employees so that if they have any questions, you want them to give that feedback to you so that you can work on it rather than facing them across council table uh, in a court. Right. The other thing that you want to do is you want to ensure that if you do have um, employee pay disparity, that it's based on objective factors that can be justified, not just the job title. And this is where it gets really interesting. You might have somebody who's a beginning accountant who's absolutely your superstar. You know that she is going to be the future of your company. Right. And it may well be that you want to pay that person more because you're betting on the come. I mean, give some thought to that. You might even want to write it down someplace so that if the senior guy who's putting three people through college comes to you and says, why are you paying that lady more than me? You'll be able to articulate it to that employee. Um, Last thought is employers should provide appropriate training instructions for management uh, that use discretion in setting pay. Right. Uh, You want to consider, and again, not the mom and pop shop, but medium and above, providing a short training through your HR department. And you might want to circulate a memorandum to all your managers who have discretion in setting pay. Um, The last thing that you want to do is end up um, with a hostile situation with an employee and you go to your manager and you say, so why are you paying this person less money than the guy? And have him say, well, she's got a husband who's making a good living. Or conversely, if it's a guy who is complaining to you, the last thing that you want to do is to go to your supervisor and say to him, so why are you paying her more money? And have him say something like, she looks awfully good at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's not going to stand up very well in front of a jury. All of these are reasons. But, Bob, I mean, I think these are things that your listenership can protect themselves with and uh, be able to feel better sleeping at night. So being clear about what you're paying and why and making sure that that is um, that the employee is fully aware of the reasons behind the pay that they get so that they at least feel fully briefed as, as to what um, what the status is with regard to their pay vis-a-vis someone else. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's, it's about transparency. I do remember the great quote from one of the congressional hearings, I am not a potted plant. Everybody likes to be treated as an individual. Yeah. Everybody likes to think that their dignity is being respected. 
And it may well be that if you explain these things ahead of time to your employees, they may not be happy, but they may be satisfied. My wife used to teach economics and she began every single semester uh, by that great Rolling Stones song, which is, uh, you, you don't always get what you need, what, but you get what you need. Yeah. And if don't. you can let your employees get what they need, it may well be that you have a much more pacific situation in the workplace than if you don't tell your employees what's going on. Okay, so I'm, I'm an employer who, um, I don't give a damn about the law, I'm just going to go ahead and do my thing and pay people what I want. What, what are the repercussions? Well, the repercussions is that you can get sued for damages, and those damages can include back pay, uh, it inc- could include an injunction, and here's the drum roll. It will include attorney's fees to the attorney who files the lawsuit against you, and that can be extraordinarily expensive. Yeah, you you might want to be a right individualist, but for gosh sake, you don't want to have to explain to your shareholders, to your partners, or to your spouse that you wanted to be a cowboy out there and uh, the situation be damned. It's not going to be a very pleasant situation if you take that path. God, you guys are expensive, aren't you? Well, you know what? Um, I'm probably uh, <laughs> expensive at the office, but not compared to if you look around at my competition. Uh, we do the best we can to work with people. <laughs> I... Um I work damn hard, and I've worked damn hard for a long time. I so I consider them on the, you know, I work just as hard as you. Equal pay for equal work. I'll accept your remuneration any day. <laughs> well, and and that's fine. You know, what the classic line is that uh, the, the lawyer has the plumber come into his house, and then he complains about the plumber's bills, and the plumber says, "Yeah, that's why I became a plumber. I used to be a lawyer." <laughs> Okay, so how will this new set of laws um, impact women, minorities, and those who have been um, uh, marginalised in the workplace? Well, we're going to see how it works, and we're going to take a look in about a year, we're going to see how it works. I mean, California is not the easiest place to do business. It's very worthwhile. The upsides are huge, um, particularly if, if you're in the tech field. This is where you want to be. Yep. I think that this can be a tempest in a teapot if you make sure that you, you, you take care of business before it becomes a problem. I, I'd like to tell people uh, who come in to see me that I'd rather slay a small dragon than a big dragon. And you know how that goes, Bob. That's true in most things in life. You may want to procrastinate. You may want to do it. But life's big lesson is that if you handle problems up front, Yep. They tend to be much smaller problems than if you wait and you let it become a festering sore. No question. Um, does this, this doesn't try to even up um, employment of men and women, does it? No, I don't, I don't think it does that as such. And there are certainly going to be disparities in, in the workplace, even though we have this act. But what it should do is aim to make things somewhat better than they have been historically. And as I'm telling my clients, when you have the Chamber of Commerce saying this is a good thing, you probably want to take a look and decide. I mean, the upside of this thing, if we want to put a smiley email on it, is that if you as an employer 
start out and try to make things fair under this act, it may well be that you motivate your workforce. And of course, we've had any number of challenging years in terms of employment, but sooner or later that's going to change. And you're going to want to make sure that you keep those good employees. Years ago, I had a, um, a client in the entertainment business, and he had me working with um, one of his seconds. And I, I went back to him and I said, you know, this young kid is extraordinary. You, you probably want to promote him to make sure that you keep him. And um, the response from uh, the guy that had retained me was, there's only room for one macher around here, which in Yiddish means one boss. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, and the long and the short of it is that that bright kid went elsewhere um, and became a, a huge competitor to the guy who had retained me. Yep. Now, maybe that guy's happy because he didn't want another boss in there, but he wasn't happy having encouraged his best employee to go out and seek work elsewhere. And, and, and likewise, if you've got a bright young woman, don't you want to keep her? You don't want her going to a place and have her come in and say, hey, look, I'm leaving you because I don't think women are treated well in this environment. How how does Silicon Valley, I just saw a report the other day that Silicon Valley, there's um, 77% of the the staff, um, particularly technical staff employed in Silicon Valley, are um, 77% are men, and that um, the men are paid something like 30% more than equivalent women, and the the average number of women on a board in Silicon Valley is less than one. This doesn't address any of those issues at all. It just says equal pay, equal work. So how does Silicon Valley get away with it? Well, you know what? You can, like most... Ventures in life, you can only deal with the present and the future. Yep. And um, I, I had an elementary school teacher who once said, a word to the wise should be sufficient. I guarantee you that the attorneys who are counseling Silicon Valley firms are telling them, you, you better do something on this because you don't want a lawsuit. Yeah. And I guarantee you the first time a large verdict comes out, against the Silicon Valley firm, all the other people are going to take a look around if they haven't already and said, you know, we better be doing something about this. Now, if they can justify the fact that it's not substantially equivalent work, I mean, for example, you don't have to pay the woman who sweeps the floor the same thing as your top engineer, but you better not have it reversed either. You better not be paying a guy sweeping the floor more than your top woman engineer. That's not going to wash. Okay, let's just go back for a second to the Jennifer Lawrence example. Um, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. If you look at the top um, box office generators, um, dollar revenue to their remuneration, you find that the top 15 or the top 18 or something are all men. All the, all the big guys pull in a lot more money than women actresses do. So why should I pay them the same similar level of compensation? You know what? That is probably going to be a valid defense, which is that the box office speaks 
But, Bob, I can make a pretty cogent argument that over the last two years, you're not going to find a bigger star out there than Jennifer Lawrence. This is true. This is true. And if she's not making as much money uh, as somebody who hasn't been drawing at the box office, there may be some explaining to do. Yeah. Where it gets interesting is, is she talking to her agent? Because I can guarantee you, I could be very wrong, but I would doubt severely that she is directly negotiating those contracts. Oh, she's got a representative who has, and now that representative has another arrow in his or her quiver to go back if, in fact, she's not making the same as her male counterpart and say, look, she's knocking it out at the box office. You gosh darn well better pay her. Yeah. I... I I spent quite a lot of time in sport and uh, I've argued for a long time and been involved in arguments for a long time that um, you put on a, a most women's events and you get very small television ratings, you get nobody in the stands and yet the guys fill the stands and pull television ratings and yet the push is for them to get the same um, pay or the same prize money, even though, for example, in tennis, women play two sets and men have to pay three. So I, I don't know how you can, you know, sort of level that playing field, but it's probably they're probably not the sort of cases that are going to go to court either, are they? I don't think that you're going to have female football players going to court on this thing. <laughs> but where it is interesting, and, and I, I hear from your voice, you're probably from England to begin with? No, Australia. Australia. Well, then forgive me. I took that wrong. But let's take a look at Wimbledon. The women now make as much prize money uh, in, in, in above a certain level of competition as the men do in Wimbledon. Yeah. And they did that by hard data. They said, look, if you put Selena up against the top guy in the world, she's probably not going to win most of the time. But that's not the relevant question. The relevant question is not raw athletic competition. It's about showbiz. Yeah, but and she only plays two sets against the men playing three. So it, well, it sort well, of defeats the equal pay for equal work, doesn't it? Well, my, let me let me play <laughs> counsel for uh, for Ms. Williams right now, which is okay. to say, now look, they may well be playing. Uh, a smaller number of sets, but it's not about raw sweat out there. It's about showbiz. And when it comes time to showbiz, you take a look at the ratings on television for the women's game, and I could be very wrong, but I don't think so. The ratings for the women's game are at least equivalent for the ratings for the men's game. So why should... We're doing the box office. Yeah. So why shouldn't we get paid as much, much as the guy who may be playing that one extra set. Yeah, I'll accept that. Jeff, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to know more about super business lawyer Jeff Kravitz, go to foxrothschild.com. I will spell it even with my Australian accent. F-O-X-R-O-T-H-S. C-H-I-L-D, Rothschild, so foxrothschild.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break.
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit radio show. Coming to you on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week, we're broadcasting from our new studio on Hollywood Boulevard where entertainment meets technology. Now, I've given presentations in 53 countries, and during question time, no matter where you are in the world, doesn't matter whether you're in Moscow or in Tokyo or Sydney or in Los Angeles, the questions are generally the same, irrespective of what the business is, its location, whether it's large or small, whether it's a startup or mature. Everybody that goes into business has similar issues. Now, of course, if you're a startup or an early stage business, you have more issues um, because you probably have less personnel looking after them. But nevertheless, the questions that I get asked are very similar. During the week, I received an email. I've been trying to answer this email for about three weeks, and I finally got to it. During the week, I received an email from one Covas of Madrid, Spain, and one writes, Dear Bob, thank you for your show. I have a small business with just 10 employees, and I would like to know what advantage there is to using cloud computing. Well, one, cloud computing allows all of a small business's critical transactions, as well as all your economic and e-commerce and website traffic data to be accessible at any time, anywhere, with the proper application. So it doesn't matter where you are, you can be travelling and uh, all your information is available. A program such as New Tech Advantage is extremely beneficial to small business owners because It allows you to see your real-time business information from any computer, anywhere, from any smartphone, anywhere, any tablet, anywhere. So you can access your information at any time, anywhere. Cloud computing allows you to spend less time dealing with administrative matters and more time selling and servicing customers. It's great because it um, it also gives you more control and less surprises. All your key business stats and your metrics are available in real time so you can make more informed decisions, you can make them faster and you can never be out of touch with the most important business data. So real in, real-time information also means key Business management data is only seconds away. You know, it's available whenever and wherever you happen to be. Cloud computing also leads to decreased cost and expense of an IT department. So you don't have to hire anybody. Everything is available 
at your fingerprints. <laughs> fingerprints. Everything is available at your fingertips in the cloud. So one, cloud computing is the way of the future. It, uh, it'll save you time and money, and it'll make um, your information and your business management data available at any time, no matter where in the world you are. Thanks for your email, one. If you're a regular listener to the show, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. We actually had a newsletter go out a few days ago for February. Send in your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and wherever else you choose to follow me. We're very excited because we're off to Cuba bright and early in the morning. So next week's show will be coming from Havana and uh, really looking forward to that. It's been on my bucket list for a while and uh, I've wanted to get to do it before um, the country's opened up in, uh, I think, in September or October. I know they're already booking something like 150 or 160 flights a week in every, and I don't think it'll be long before it turns into one giant Cancun, which will be unfortunate or fortunate, depending on your viewpoint. So let's look forward to next week's show from Havana. So I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're pleased to have been bringing you this show since 2011. That's five years. And thanks for sticking with me. If you're a regular listener of the show, um, thank you. And go to my website at bobpritchard.com and uh, you can look up every one of the shows for the last five years and listen to them. In the meanwhile... Remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope, and I mean being daring, getting out there and pushing the hell out of it, and you're not living on the edge, then you're just taking up too much space. You're breathing air that could be used by somebody else who wants to get ahead. So get out of the way. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. It's the hard stuff that um, makes you feel good. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week when we broadcast our sixth international broadcast from Havana in Cuba. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.